I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome and thank you for joining us this evening for the launch of Diane de Primed's Revolutionary Letters with readings by Helen Charman, Mira Mata and Sia Conrad, followed by 30 minutes worth of conversation between myself, Sarah Shin, Francesca Wade and Sophie Lewis. We'll be delving into what we can of Diane's incredibly rich and juicy life, her revolutionary letters and a little bit of what messages they might hold for us today. Um, following that, there'll be a chance for some questions from you as well. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome Helen. Hello. Um, thanks very much, Sarah. And thank you uh, to everyone uh, who's participating in this. I'm really excited to be reading from uh, Revolutionary Letters today. I'm just going to read from this rather than read anything of mine because it feels, uh, to me, it feels uh, like an exciting opportunity to do that. Revolutionary letter number eight. Every time you pick the spot for a be-in, a demonstration, a march, a rally, you are choosing the ground for a potential battle. You are still calling these shots. Pick your terrain with that in mind. Remember the old gang rules. Stick to your neighbourhood. Don't let them lure you to Central Park every time. I would hate to stumble bloody out of that park to find help. Central Park West or Fifth Avenue, which would you choose? Go to Love Inns with incense, flowers, food, and a plastic bag with a damp cloth in it for tear gas. Wear no jewellery, wear clothes you can move in easily. Wear no glasses, contact lenses. Earrings for pierced ears are especially hazardous. Try to be clear in front what you will do if it comes to trouble. If you're going to try to split, stay out of the centre. Don't stampede or panic others. Don't waver between active and passive resistance. Know your limitations. Bear contempt neither for yourself nor any of your brothers. No one way works. It will take all of us shoving at the thing from all sides to bring it down. Revolutionary letter number nine. Advocating the overthrow of government is a crime. Overthrowing it is something else altogether. It is sometimes called revolution, but don't kid yourself. Government is not where it's at. It's only a good place to start. Number one, kill head of Dow Chemical. Number two, destroy plant. 
Number three, make it unprofitable for them to build again, i.e. destroy the concept of money as we know it, get rid of interest, savings, inheritance, pounds money as dated coupons that come in the mail to everyone and avoid in 30 days is still a good idea. Or let's start with no money at all and invent it if we need it or mimograph it and everyone print as much as they want and see what happens. Declare a moratorium on debt. The Continental Congress did on all debt public and private. Revolutionary letter number 100. Reality is no obstacle. Refuse to obey, refuse to die, refuse to sleep, refuse to turn away, refuse to close your eyes, refuse to shut your ears, refuse silence when you can still sing, refuse discourse in lieu of embracement, come to no end that is not a beginning. Revolutionary letter number 79, one of the jobs of Corundum, written on the eve of the first Gulf War. Some of us have to mourn while the rest of you organise. Some of us have to dance in the time of grief. I'm just going to read one more now, and I'm going to read the first letter in the book. Uh, Revolutionary letter number one. I have just realized that the stakes are myself. I have no other ransom money, nothing to break or barter, but my life, my spirit measured out in bits, spread over the roulette table. I recoup what I can, nothing else to shove under the nose of the maitre de jeu, nothing to thrust out the window, no white flag. This flesh, all I have to offer to make the play with this immediate head, what it comes up with, my move as we slither over this go board, stepping always, we hope, between the lines. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Helen. I would like to invite Mira now to read. Hi. Okay, Ian, hear me. So I'm going to start. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this event. Um, I'm going to read four of Diane de Prima's poems beginning with revolutionary letter number 23. A lack of faith is simply a lack of courage. One who says, I wish I could believe that, means simply that he is coward, is pleased to be spectator on this scene where there are no spectators, where all hands not actually working are working against as they lie idle, folded in lap, or holding up newspapers full of lies or wrapped around steering wheel on one more pleasure trip. Revolutionary letter number 48. Be careful. With what relief do we fall back on the tale so often told in revolutions that now we must organize, obey the rules so that later we can be free? It is the point at which the revolution stops. To be carried forward later and in another country, this is the pattern but we can break the pattern. Learn now we see with all our skin, smell with our eyes too. Sense and sex are boundless and the call is to be boundless in them. Make the joy now that we want. No shape for space and time now, but the shapes we will. 
Revolutionary letter number 75, Grant. You cannot write a single line without a cosmology, a cosmogony laid out before all eyes. There is no part of yourself you can separate out saying, this is memory, this is sensation, this is the work I care about, this is how I make a living. It is whole, it is a whole, it always was whole, you do not make it so. There is nothing to integrate. You are a presence. You are an appendage of the work. The work stems from, hangs from the heaven you create. Every man, every woman carries a firmament inside and the stars in it are not the stars in the sky. Without imagination, there is no memory. Without imagination, there is no sensation. Without imagination, there is no will desire. History is a living weapon in your hand, and you have imagined it. It is thus that you find out for yourself. History is the dream of what can be. It is the relation between things in a continuum of imagination. What you find out for yourself is what you select out of an infinite sea of possibility. No one can inhabit your world, yet it is not lonely. The ground of imagination is fearlessness. Discourse is videotape of a movie of a shadow play, but the puppets are in your hand, your counters in a multidimensional chess, which is divination and strategy. The war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. The ultimate famine is the starvation of the imagination. It is death, to be sure, but the undead seek to inhabit someone else's world. The ultimate claustrophobia is the syllogism. The ultimate claustrophobia is it all adds up. Nothing adds up and nothing stands in for anything else. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. The only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed in it. There is no way out of the spiritual battle. There is no way you can avoid taking sides. There is no way you cannot have a poetics, no matter what you do, plumber, baker, teacher. You do it in the consciousness of making or not making your world. You have a poetics, you step into the world like a suit of ready-made clothes, or you etch in light. Your firmament spills into the shape of your room, the shape of the poem, of your body, of your loves. A woman's life, a man's life is an allegory. Dig it. There is no way out of the spiritual battle. The war is the war against the imagination. You can't sign up as a conscientious objector. The war of the worlds hangs here, right now, in the balance. It is a war for this world to keep it a veil of soul-making. The taste in all our mouths is the taste of our power, and it is bitter as death. Bring yourself home to yourself. Enter the garden. The guy at the gate with the flaming sword is yourself. The war is the war for the human imagination, and no one can fight it but you, and no one can fight it for you. The imagination is not only holy, it is precise. It is not only fierce, it is practical. Men die every day for the lack of it. 
it is vast and elegant. Intellectus means light of the mind. It is not discourse, it is not even language, the inner sun. The polis is constellated around the sun. The fire is, is central. Last one, revolutionary letter number 96, poem at dawn. Empire is its own undoing. Thank you. Thank you, Mira. It was so wonderful to read along. Um, now I'd like to welcome our final reader, Thea Conrad. Hello, everybody. Well, I'm very excited to be here. Revolutionary letter number 16. We are eating up the planet. The New York Times takes a forest every Sunday. Los Angeles draws its water from the Sacramento Valley. The rivers of British Columbia are ours on lease for 99 years. Every large factory is an infringement on our God-given right to light and air. The clean and flowing rivers stock with fish to the very possibility of life. For our children's children, we will have to look carefully, i.e., do we really want need electricity? And at what cost in natural resource, human resource, do we need cars? when petroleum pumped from the earth poisons the land around for 100 years. Pumped from the car poisons the hard-pressed cities or try this statistic. The USA has 5% of the world's people, uses over 50% of the world's goods. Our garbage holds matter for survival for uncounted underdeveloped nations. Glad that she um, is underdeveloped. Revolutionary letter number 25. Know every way out of your house, where it goes, every alley on the block. Which backyards connect? Which walls are scalable? Which bushes will hold a man? Construct at least one man-sized hiding place in your walls. Know for sure which neighbors will let you sneak in the back door and saunter out the front while the man is parked in your driveway or tearing your pad apart. Which neighbors won't be home? Which cellar doors are open? Whom you can summon in your neighborhood to do your errands? Check the block, set up a getaway while you sit tight inside and your house is watched. Revolutionary letter number 46. And as you learn the magic, learn to believe it. Don't be surprised when it works. You undercut your power. Love that. Idea. Revolutionary letter number 50. <clears throat> as soon as we submit to a system based on causality, linear time we submit again to the old values. Plunge into slavery. Be strong. We have the right to make the universe we dream. No need to fear science groveling apology for things as they are. All power to joy, which will remake the world. So this next piece is a, a poem that I wrote. I was really excited when Sarah Shin uh, wrote to me and asked to publish this on the flap of the book as a a fellow traveler with these incredible poems by Dan DePrima, I'm very honored. So I'm going to read this one, 
these poems I'm writing are about the size of a breath, but these are connected. So I'm going to read this first one. Swallowed each other until we heard each other think. We are pirates I have loved, loosened my wilderness. No more miscounting butterflies in our utopia. Let's make poems that can rob a bank. A little bit further up. Never deny the warmth of a burning flag. Sing a 900-year-old death tune just in time to digitize empathy. Sing it for days. Sing it into chairs. Sit on it. Fold the anus gingerly around it. Hold its sweetest note. Till we remember which ancestor was the first to forsake the power of an ant. What was the point of today? Nothing more than microscopic creatures on my eyelids reaching for sunlight with me. How hard is your historical memory? As in Gay Bashing 101. Same day you learn hieroglyph means sacred carving. Elegy is not a form. It is a state of being the poet must write from. A faggot takes a beating from another holy book. And the band said, This is my four-leaf clover. What did they say? This is my four-leaf clover. Our little places within are not dungeons, remember, remember. Astronomers point satellites into space. The military points them down at us. The inverse relationship between love we offer and what we give. This on and off button is another opportunity to believe there are only two choices. This do must end. And this is the last piece. Part of this forest tastes like the man I love, with an actual number of nails holding the bedroom together. Other days, when we died where we fell, we became the forest. My car never intended to be a meat grinder, another face going under the waves. We felt awful after hitting the deer. We made love and slept with one of his antlers between us. Thank you, Helen Mira CA, for reading some of your work and also these revolutionary letters, which are also love letters, as I believe CA said. It really um, shows the breadth and the variety of uh, De Prima's interests and also uh, to hear them read like this, it's like we are hearing her speak directly to us, which kind of leads me on to my first question for Sophie and Francesca. Hello, Hello. welcome. Um, so Francesca wrote the foreword to Silver Press's edition and Sophie Lewis wrote the introduction and it was such a pleasure to bring everyone together into this volume in uh, perhaps a bit like in one jam session blowing to uh, paraphrase phrase Diane as uh, Francesca also notes in her foreword. So um, maybe to begin with, I was thinking to perhaps lay a bit of historical context. So. Um, Sophie rightly notes in her introduction that, um, like free medicine, 
Deprima's letters make the rounds in moments of heightened struggle and dispiriting defeat. So I was wondering if you might be able to give some background to what sorts of struggles uh, she was involved in and what sorts of similarities with our time that mean her work is so resonant today. I mean, it's really difficult with a limited time to summarise a life as rich as Diane Deprima's, um, but she she can be placed in so many different tribes and those actually include, I mean, the most obvious one people know about is obviously the Beats, but there's also Panthers, um, Anarchists, Acid Heads, Modernists, including a fascist, Ezra Pound. You know, these scenes and, and milieus that she was connected with uh, are quite disparate. Diggers in San Francisco, um, who were sort of anarchist theatre troops and land occupiers. And, um, you know, there's a sort of, almost situationist bent to some of her organizing. She was involved in making happenings and free conventions, organizing kind of all manner, all manner of disparate sort of assault on bourgeois society. But I think the the resonance that people feel with the sorts of um, struggles that she was engaged in are probably concentrated around housing justice, anti-gentrification, and also just black power I mean, she was an anarcho-communist um, militant in the um, in the 50s and 60s, uh, perhaps um, perhaps losing touch with um, that militancy a little bit towards the end of her life. But I think the reason that her poems, her revolutionary letters specifically, kind of circulate in this way and are almost pressed into people's palms in the wake, as you say, of, of um, you know heightened struggle in the present or also in defeat is because they they speak to a kind of critically utopian horizon of possibility that we have seen kind of straining at the seams of the present state of things with uprisings for black life and and yeah also for housing you know this is a sort of dimension of her work that I find you know has been productively highlighted by by scholars and comrades like um yeah, Sean Lovett and Joe Giardini are two people studying Duprima's kind of almost domestic radicalism and the sort of almost yeah militant uh, domesticity um, of of her of her over. So there's there's I think um, we we rarely talk about it, but she wrote uh, a, an essay in the Nation about the um, the progress of the fuzz, the sort of uh, the condition of high high rent as um, an attack on black life and on art. Um, so, you know, so I think she really needs to be thought of as someone who um, who speaks to the right to the city, inspires the radicalization of um, struggles against landlords, um, against rent, against the commodification of um, of living space. Francesca? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's interesting to note that at this when she was kind of composing revolutionary letters, she pretty recently left New York for San Francisco. And perhaps later on, we can talk a bit about the sort of explosion of both of causes and of kind of artistic experimentation and experimentation she was involved in in New York um, and she continued composing against the backdrop of the Stonewall riots in June 69 and Earth Day in 1970, the ongoing war in Vietnam and ongoing questions of women's liberation, racial justice um, and so I think it's that kind of blend of, of of it, the fact that she's explicitly writing, as she, I think, puts it from within a planetary crisis, I think, makes her work in this kind of fresh context be so resonant. Um, and that line from Rant that I think Mira read, the war that matters is the war against the imagination, 
is the line that really sticks with me when I'm thinking about why her work is so feels so contemporary. I think it's about a kind of reimagination that suggests that we can think in different ways, that we can use what we have as a kind of toolkit for thinking new possibilities into existence, I guess. Yeah, and as you also say, she wrote so much and she was not just writing poetry, but all sorts of things, including plays and um, perhaps also her letters have their foundations in her private letters, um, which is something that Francesca talks about in her forward. So Francesca went into the archives at Spelman College and retrieved some really brilliant scans of de Prima's correspondence with her lifelong friend, Audrey Lord. So, yeah, I mean, she went to high school with Audrey Lord. One detail that I love is that they were skipping classes to hold seances to contact dead poets they admired. And after school, they maintained this lifelong correspondence, um, which shows like a little bit of insight into the connection between the intimacy of her private correspondence with her childhood friend and also the intimacy of the register of the letters. And so this question was around uh, simply, you know, who are the letters for? Because Sophie also articulates how the letters seek to conjure a revolutionary subject. And so perhaps if I might be able to ask you to speak a little bit about the origin of the letters and their publication history, but also their history before that, which was much more performance based. And I was curious to see what you thought about what's happening textually or poetically when, um, you know, what's happening when she's taking across writing for an individual to a collective reader. What and how is she alchemizing there? Francesca, you go first. Yeah, it was amazing to find this um, sort of whole tranche of letters, um, which, yeah, as you say, they they met at high school um, and remained friends throughout their lives. Um, another nice little detail about the two of them, I think, is that Audrey Lord actually delivered one of Diane de Prima's children, and Diane de Prima published Audrey Lord's first book of poetry, which feels like that's not entirely equal, but it's a sweet sort of generative exchange. And I think actually in these scans, it might be one of the very first mentions of this project, because on New Year's Eve 1968, she adds at the end of the letter that she's sending you a bunch of new poems called Revolutionary Letters. Um, so I guess from the very start of the project, it's there's a kind of sense of these being texts that could be sent in the post just as you would to a friend, which sort of comes to pass both in terms of the letters kind of voice and form and in the way that they were actually were distributed um so from i guess later in 1968 she started sending batches of poems regularly to a news agency which distributed them to free papers across the country um and then later that year um initial kind of collections of what had been written so far were published by um kind of local presses which she had connections to like the poets Project, poetry project of St Mark's Church in New York and the Diggers Press in San Francisco. And she then continued to perform new poems over the years at marches or at rallies. Um, so the the text, as it were, was constantly accumulating um, and always responding um, to new contexts. But I think, I guess what I find so amazing about the poems is the way the voice remains so intimate, like she's addressing you directly as she was to Lord in these letters um, in a you know a really personal form, um, and I guess yeah in a way that feels like the the revolutionary subject as you put it the kind of an individual 
who who can't be separated from a wider collective, an audience who's both both singular and wider. Thank you, Sophie. Would you like to respond? Yeah, um, I was so delighted that Francesca uh, looked at the you know the other sort of literal letters that that Diane Di Primo also wrote um, throughout her life, and and um, I think it is interesting to think about why the revolutionary letters are letters and in what sense I have yeah in in my intro I talk a bit about an idea that I um, am indebted uh, to uh, Sean O'Brien for um, another scholar of De Prima who is thinking about what that direct address does and you know shows um, in a sort of very historical materialist sense how this kind of poetics is about conjuring a revolutionary subject as as you put it and um, I think it's interesting how untrendy, in a sense, that poetics is. And, and um, I think that also speaks a bit to their strange combination of, you know, aging quite badly and aging really well or seeming timeless, you know, because some of them really don't travel, I think, to our era. And some of them are as fresh and tear jerking as they surely could ever have been. And you can sort of tell that they were written to immediately be kind of blared through a loudspeaker on the steps of City Hall in San Francisco, which is, you know, which is what they were, at least some of them, right? Because the first 49 were, you know, included in the 1971 um, edition. I mean, the first 34 were in the self-published editions um, that Di Prima oversaw before that in 68. But then there's a bit of a kind of change in pace. And it's, you know, perhaps it doesn't make sense really literarily to analyze the collection as a as a unit because after letter 49 there's a bit of a sort of pace change a bit of a turning point for the series after that they accumulate throughout time at a much slower pace they sort of turn from um the sort of urgency um of the of the revolutionary sort of long 60s towards something a bit more lugubrious a sort of documentation of, of mourning and of atrocity um and spiritual concerns you know, there's a more offhand style, um, Joe Giardini argues, to the sort of earlier stuff where there's coterie, community. Um, but, yeah, I think thinking of them as letters as a, a, as a, a, is also a way of refusing. She is refusing to, to, to end them, to, to give them an expiration date and an end point, which is <laughs> imminently uh, about keeping struggle going you know may it continue may it continue this is this is also something i think of as um an injunction to others to write revolutionary letters the letter may never arrive we hope we hope it will but i like the comrade juliana spa <laughs> says about the direct address about these letters which is that um that it sort of bespeaks a desire to have it all to be both autonomous and related that's yeah that's kind of what I would say about the the form that they take I love that I love that so much I mean the the letter form it embeds or like within it there is a relationality that is definitely always implicit and of course her life was um you know we, we touched upon it earlier but it was absolutely brimming over with um the practice of making relationships and also remaking the forms in which they could take place and since we, hers was so incredibly juicy, um, I wondered maybe we could explore a little bit further about who exactly she was hanging out with and making life with and making children with 
um, because I think that this also sets the context for the earliest because they're kind of emerging at the same time. No, actually, after the Floating Bear magazine. I love the fact that Floating Bear is named after Winnie the Pooh, literally a floating bear, a bear on a balloon. <laughs> and that's something that she put together. With, I mean, I'll, I'll just speak very briefly and then Francesca can, can take over. But I mean, I mean, the list of sort of luminaries that she hung out with is just too, too long. <laughs> um, and I, I almost don't really want to kind of do that, that, that work of sort of um, contextualizing her in terms of all the big names. But, but they are, uh, it is an extraordinary life. I think Amiri Baraka, formerly known as Leroy Jones, is the is the figure that perhaps stands out for me, who who was her lover and collaborator um, on on this kind of mimeograph project. They were, you know, they they went to jail for it because of its obscenity and its sort of incendiary politics. Um, I think it's kind of great that something named after Winnie the Pooh was so sort of explosive <laughs> in the minds of the CIA. Um, but she, you know. This is sort of dissident publishing. And she also, you know, she smuggled weapons uh, for the Panthers uh, on one occasion. She she hung out at Millbrook, Timothy Leary's acid commune. You know, take it from here, Francesca. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, you can. Um, yeah, I mean, I really recommend also her own autobiographical writings, especially Recollections of My Life as a Woman, which kind of charts uh life from school through all the kind of various pads as she puts it that she hung out in and and kind of gives details of of all the the homes she made the escapes she made um her projects um and in fact also city lights have just published um spring and autumn annals for the first time which sort of charts the daily writing practice she developed after the death of her close friend freddie herco and is a really beautiful portrait of her kind of radical homemaking, I guess, the way she kind of went and set out to create a life and an art that are part of that very same project of, of openness, I guess. There's a there's a line which really stuck with me from, I think it's from her introduction to Audre Lorde's first book of poetry, The First Cities, um, where she describes a woman's world peopled with men and children and the dead, exotic as scallops, <laughs> which feels to me like it sort of describes her own way of living, kind of chaotic and um, and full of adventure. Um, and I think when talking <laughs> delicious, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and also, I'm, I'm interested in, in. I think it's important to note how central a figure she was for other poets as well. I think she put a lot of energy into promoting the work of other writers and artists, and um, and kind of collaborating across disciplines. A lot of her, her closest friends and the people she's often associated with were artists and dancers and uh, choreographers. Um, yeah. And she worked so much in theatre, um, both as a writer and as a stage manager, and as one of the founders of the New York Poets Theatre, um, which sort of stands alongside the Floating Bear, perhaps as a project to do with um, with bringing ideas and people um, together. And of course, she ran the Poets Press um, between 1965 and 69, which um, was specifically set out to help writers who had difficulty publishing through the usual channels. Um, and so that feels that sense of work as a kind of collective communal endeavour feels like it's sort of fundamental background to the letters project of kind of, of solidarity and community, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Immediately, because also the Floating Bear was a free magazine and it was circulated 
to I think around 20,000 subscribers by post and mostly there were people who were already in some kind of dialogue so there was definitely this um yeah collectivity I suppose and also the entwinement of that uh method of distribution and the lives of the scene um is really um inspiring in a time when I suppose you know we have Twitter I guess <laughs> what does that say um also to kind of pick up on what you were saying, Francesca, about how she also created spaces to hold and to nurture and promote other people's work. Um, I'm kind of connecting that to a thread of her life practice that Sophie brings up really well in her intro about um, kinship and homemaking, which we touched a bit uh, earlier. But um, this thing about the politicized sphere of the household, I was wondering if you might say a little bit about that, because it's so connected to the practicality of her letters, some of them. I mean, I, I, I probably would say this, but I, <laughs> I think there is a family abolitionist kernel in the revolutionary letters and in the sort of um, the text of, 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 if you can say this, of, um, of de Prima's life, the sort of um, the political um, sort of uh, project of, of her um, pad hopping, um, sort of pad weaving, almost communizing efforts for 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 providing spaces within the belly of the beast to um to make art in to ferment revolution in to um you know hide uh, fugitives in to you know to etc etc and and there's also literal baby making she was the sort of biological parent to five human beings but she also sort of makes clear in her in her poems and in her um, attitudes and her ways of uh, building households that she she um, at least aspires to a horizon in which children uh, belong to everyone. I think I can't remember which letter it is. We all have the same babies, you know, left to themselves. Um, you know, people share children. Um, and yeah, I think there is an opposition to the private nuclear household in, in all of Diane, you know, de Prima's work. Uh, there's also the rather delightful story about her pornographic memoir, Memoirs of a Beatnik, which I think is also important to point out is kind of of a piece with all of her sort of hustling, profane, sort of not, there is no artistic purity here. There's no space of kind of, you know, middle class artistic freedom. She is, she's hustling. She's putting in hours doing shit jobs, um, I think she was an accountant for a bit. She did sort of this, she did that. She she, she was kind of cobbling together little jobs and um, she made, in order to, you know, make ends meet, she wrote um, a sort of largely made up or at least inflated, um, you know, pornographic account of what the beats um, were, were really up to, you know, just to pander to the sort of uh, the straight world's um, you know, most prurient fantasies about <laughs> about this, about about what might be the case in that underworld, um, that demi monde that she inhabited. And so, you know, and her her editor, um, you know, sent back uh, her draft saying, you know, more sex. And so she condensed kind of five years worth of, um, you know, commune orgies into into one year for a narrative that, uh, as she herself said, the um, researched by literally going around her housemates and getting them to uh you know try out positions with her using their bodies to see if they they would technically work so she could weave them into the narrative and i think this is you know it's not just an amusing 
sort of illustration of the importance, which was real, of um, sex and sensuality to her, you know, her vision of revolution. And she does, she says, um, you know, uh, there's a beautiful phrase I'm going to now misquote, something about our, um, the, you know, <laughs> the fissures in the earth are kind of filled with our mating flesh, right? She really sees, you know, the erotic as, as part of the, the, the drive that will sort of unmake capital, colonialism, patriarchy and all other evils. Um, but at the same time, I really want to sort of resist the romanticization of her as a, a figure outside of the sort of um, material constraints of, um, you know, of, of capital and class. And she is, you know, she's making shit up in order to sell books. <laughs> you know? um, and so there's there's an interesting kind of contrast between that sort of work and the free mimeograph um you know efflorescence that she was part of the the dissemination of mimeograph uh missives letters urgent things to be immediately transmitted to, you know via uh loud halos um and i do also want to just uncomfortably kind of mark that that this kind of um there is a tension here in what we're doing right now between, you know, the needful sort of reissuing and republication of Diane de Prima's work in the revolutionary letters, because they have not been really available, right? People can't, haven't been able to get hold of a book, um, of a, of a copy of the, of the letters for a long time. And at the same time, you know, there is something kind of, um, against the grain about sort of elevating the revolutionary letters to high literary forums, such as this one, and commodifying it, you know? Which also was reflected last uh, two nights ago in Philadelphia, where there was a reading and a launch um, and quite a lot of kind of controversy and anarchist mess um, and, and dispute about about the, the commodification of the letters for this anniversary, which was very much, if you like, of a piece and of a keeping with the tradition of um, De Prima's own anarchist kind of milieu. Um, so sorry for the ramble. No, absolutely. And also, um, I think in our early exchanges, Sophie, you were talking about the tension of publishing these letters, which were intended as scrappy things that you probably fold up and have in your back pocket. And they're sort of um, neo canonization in a way as uh, some sort of classic, which does seem different in terms of to, um, how embedded and enmeshed and in the soup everything about her life seemed to be. Um, but yeah, I think I'm rambling now as well. Um, but the, the kind of eros that drives her letters and also flows through her life, I think is something that perhaps, um, connects with her brand of spirituality or her engagement with spiritual studies and practices where I don't think that for her it was divorced from her materialism and her political concerns. Um, I really feel that she was someone who had this enormous uh, interest and direction towards an, an appetite for the absolute and the whole, which is all of life, not just the loom or the fabric, but also, you know, who is weaving and all of these questions. So um, I wanted to ask Francesca um, about perhaps uh, one of her named and most loved forebears in this kind of style of Western esotericism, who was the poet H.D. Um, and De Prima names her as almost a mother figure. Yeah, it's such an interesting yeah. connection. Yeah, I mean, she Diane, when I was researching, I guess I've researched both H.D. and Diane de Prima and the kind of resonances between their work and concerns 
uh, feel very strong or sort of, I guess they were almost contemporaries at one stage. I mean, HD would be at least a generation older, but um, yeah, there's a sense of, of De Primo, I think, really taking up the mantle from HD in terms of a kind of exploration of, of spirituality, of traditions, um, and in real interest, I guess, in self-knowledge and the relationship between different kinds of knowledge, um, different ways of relating to nature, different states of consciousness, um, which I think is tied up with the way that both of them kind of set out to challenge gender norms, capitalist norms, and looking for kind of alternatives to the systems they saw around them and looking deep into the past as well as around them. Um, I think with Deprima, there's a real sense of her kind of casting her net wide and seeking out sources that might be kind of relevant or helpful. Um, she's She was really interested or influenced by what she called the hidden religions, the kind of traditions of thought um, outside of monotheism um, and really pursued thinkers like um, Paracelsus and John Dee or Giordano Bruno, kind of occultists or heretics who were um, exiled for their beliefs. Um, and she often course refers to her own anarchist heritage and the figure of her grandfather um, Domenico Malozzi um, and I guess I feel like those all of those kind of disparate figures sort of converge in this I guess what she described as a visionary tradition she was in kind of communion with anyone who was attempting to expand possibilities I think whether of language or of form or of thought uh, which kind of goes back to her romantic her seances with the romantics um or as as Sophie pointed out when she was pretty young I think just maybe in her twen early 20s or even a teenager she visited Ezra Pound at, at St Elizabeth's um and she loved Gertrude Stein as well she and HD were, uh, were I guess were the kind of modernists that she looked back to um, I think she really thought deeply about what it means to write and work in a tradition to kind of situ situate herself within a past and and also subvert it. Um, in Rant, she writes that his history is the dream of what can be the relation between things in a continuum of imagination. Um, and I think that's kind of where she saw her work as like as a kind of stop along that continuum sort of a tool for others to look back to and and take in new directions as well. And um, one of my favourite poems by her ends with the line, rewrite the calendar, which reminds me so much of that um, graffiti, which was, I think, at the Justice for Jacob Blake protest in Oakland last year, which um, the graffiti reads, no cops, no jails, no linear fucking time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that her metaphysical... Uh, inquiries um, really were inseparable from her belief in how to live with others in the world. And she was also a student of Tibetan and then Zen Buddhism, um, which she started studying, I think, in earnest with um, some teachers when she started teaching at the Jack Naropa, uh, Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa. And this non-dualist kind of philosophy would maybe suggest that the writer and the receiver of the letters aren't necessarily separate, but also perhaps, you know, when she's writing the letter to you, she's also writing from herself and writing herself into these letters. But I just wanted to kind of maybe step slightly sideways to a question because it's important and we haven't necessarily gone into this so much. But um, she also had the strong ecological consciousness and the sense that the world, which is our collective home, is something that is sacred. Um, and I was wondering how you think that ecological consciousness comes across, because I know that 
this is maybe perhaps an opening for a little bit of like a dud note for you, Sophie. Um, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it strikes a dud note, some of the more um, anarcho-primitivist tinged eco-feminist moments and threads. For me, it, th there are uh, certain kinds of um, potential directions that some of those tropes and aesthetics can lead that are that are quite, uh, you know, seriously uh to be to be avoided and and to be even combated i mean for me it's it this is by no means a sort of uh you know uh, an accusation of her whose politics I, I i am hugely indebted to and and inspired by but i also would say that she would resist very much the making of heroes and the making of of, of leaders and uh you know so so of course um you know i i feel invited almost by her to 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 fight with her <laughs> politically over things and and that includes you know a discomfort I have with the daughter of you know a family who supported Mussolini hanging out with the fascist Ezra Pound and name checking his fiscal and monetary policy uh, in one of the revolutionary letters I think it's number nine and um and then also appealing at times to a uh, uh, um a very sort of, um, we might say nowadays, ableist kind of uh, confidence in um, the the natural body and its healthful athletic um, potency when liberated from all of the sort of contaminating uh, toxic and technological mess of modernity. Um, I think that's fair to say. And this is not just to reiterate an accusation of, you know, uh, eco-fascism in Diane de Prima, um, just uh, to say that there is a, a rather too uncomplicated uh, uh, edifice of nature undergirding some uh, of the letters uh, to my taste. Um, so, you know, and, and, and by the way, um, I find that quite a pity in, in, in light of the fact that she has such, she was clearly, uh, I think, a trans ally and comrade and she came from a sort of um uh lesbian uh milieu as well that was kind of uh proletarian and uh trampy rather than sort of uh, uh simply sort of you know uh turfy if you know proto-turfy if you know what I mean so there is all this kind of cyborgicity in her life and in her like appetites but yeah I, I, th I think for me um the, there's yeah, there's some worrying confidence about the um, the healthful and the, the sort of primal um, that isn't to my taste. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, it's, it's very earthy, I guess. And I think that the the tinges of anarcho-primitivism that we see is um, especially curious because I feel like the letters are by default future oriented for a future reader. And all those instructions and also the fact that she wrote because she had to for money, you know, these things are all about survival and uh, the importance of keeping people alive. And that's the same thing as also keeping revolutionary desire alive. But also at the same time, you know, there's so much that is alive from De Prima's work that are so relevant today. And, you know, what do they offer us today? I mean, uh, Sophie, you um, have a really wonderful list of um, where you see uh, De Prima's kind of messages and yearnings out in the world around you. Um, so, I mean, maybe perhaps to close this, we're running close to audience questions time would be what do the letters offer us today? And as a kind of, you know, reframing of that question, what is the space of the poem? Maybe a big leap. <laughs> um, Francesca? Um, one of the lines I really love is, um, what will win is mantras, the sustenance we give each other, the energy we plug into. And so I guess for me, it's that sense of kind of calling out and bringing people in that feels both kind of empowering and somehow trusting in a way. It's a kind of injunction to imagine different possibilities um, and act on them out in the world. And in a sense also that it's kind of down to us, but it's not, but we're not on our own. There's that line I think might be my favorite of all is get up, put on your shoes, get started, someone will finish. Do the letters offer us today? I think, you know, to be a bit contrarian and quote De Prima herself, you know, perhaps we need to um, resist the idea that they, um, that they offer us anything. <laughs> you know, there's, um, there's a sort of anti, instrumentality that she has in her poetic when she she states quite insistently that you know um you can't change anything by reading or writing poetry you know in, in number 78 um halfway around the world the bombs are falling do not think to correct this by reading but that said <laughs> she she was a firm you know this is a sort of dialectical tension she believed um and practiced and dedicated i think more than anything was a poet you know uh a revolutionary, but before that, in a sense, a, po a poet because of the the sense she has that possibilities uh, do emerge, in a sense, from uh, from the imagination we educate and cultivate and 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 tease and provoke through through poetry. I was very moved by something Hanif Abdul Rakib said at a memorial for her, um, which which was that Banda Prima taught him um, that the the poet the poem has limits. Yet um, the horizon we could step into through the poem is potentially limitless. Um, and these missives, um, we hope, uh, could inspire uh, still in the future <laughs> the, the overthrowing of, of all governments. No more, no less. Yeah, it's always thank you that. for including <laughs> me in this. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Um, I wondered, seeing as we don't have very many questions from the audience, if the audience would like to drop some more into the chat. 
Um, and perhaps in the meantime, um, I, I thought that we would only do this really indulgently if we had plenty of time. And I think we do. But I wondered if you might like to share some of your favourite poems or like some of the favourite parts of your poems. I think I definitely heard several of them being read earlier, which was joyful. Francesca? I think I've quoted from quite a lot of mine and I heard a lot of them read, definitely. Number 26. This is, a, this is something that I turn over in my head and, and I hope it can do something for you. Uh, the part where she says, there is no end, there are only means, each one had better justify itself. To whom? Is the last line. Great. Thank you so much for um, having a chat with us to celebrate this book. Um, so turning to some audience questions now, perhaps um, we have one which perhaps got answered, um, but I will read it anyway. It is from Anonymous. Can you tell us how the revolutionary letters changed over the years? Did Suprema's politics or attitudes change? I wondered if the dreams or ideas she had in the 1960s were still the same in the 1990s. I think that we can dig into that a bit more because, um, Sophie, you were mentioning that uh, after letter number 45 or so, there is not just a tonal shift, but we know that contextually her life is quite different. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is I think it's fair to say, a bit of a retreat from the urge, from, from, from militant action and, you know, the course of her life is, I mean, there's so many geographic changes that, um, and I mean, she has poems that are all about California, poems that are all about new, you know, there, there are so many different kinds of geographies, um, including ones of spiritual retreat and sort of psychotropic kind of journeying. And, you know, um, teaching at the Naropa Institute is a very different vibe from building barricades with diggers. I, I, I don't, you know, I feel a bit disloyal saying this, but she did sort of, you know, become a bit more liberal in her in her older age, you know, and she became a bit more interested in um, politics with a capital P. Um, you know, the, the, there's a lot of contrasts in the poems, you know, in, in the height of, you know, the, of the sort of 1968 moment, she's being, you know, quite salty and you know she's being a bitch about things like the poor people's campaign you know she's to the left of of everything and and you know fighty with it but then you know towards the end of the collection uh in the 90s the 2000s and so on she's she's um well you can see for yourself you know she even has a poem about obama <laughs> sorry um francesca yeah, it's. It, I don't know how it's. I guess I associate her so much with the with the sort of sixties, seventies, the sort of Beats New York context that it's quite funny when suddenly Google and Facebook and <laughs> Medicare um, kind of pop up. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, I think later maybe in like was it seventy eight that she published um, Loba, and I think also in the eighties um, she was teaching at the New College of California and. Um, and was really developing a pretty kind of all-encompassing sort of theory of consciousness, I think, which was um, into which she was pouring a lot of the, the kind of cosmology that she'd been developing over this kind of lifelong project of reading. So I guess it seems to me that her life, although it encompasses all these twists and turns and developing, was was constantly sort of the kind of accumulation of knowledge, just like, I guess, the letters 
continue as you as Sophie puts it really nicely when you say something in your introduction about how it's sort of fairly posthumous you know this is a sort of living collection and you know which Debrie Prima had her own imprint on um and so yeah it feels like you know talking about her it's not it's not sort of you know something that's set in in history it's it's I think you've definitely shown that it's um something that has so much to talk about and debate about and <laughs> argue with um, yeah, I think that both um, what you were saying and the next question, which I'll read, are um, things that I wonder if CA might be able to <laughs> come on screen or, and, or might like to talk about because CA's um, also taught at Naropa and um, yeah, like me. Oh, hi, CA. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to invite you to see if you wanted to respond to anything about Diane's later life, how her poetry changed. And then also this question, which I will read from Jonathan. Um, as a young man, I sat in the tent at Naropa listening to her lectures on alchemy, which were mind blowing. Uh, do we have any idea if these transcripts to those lectures are available anywhere? Yeah, there, there is. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this right now. Uh, I believe. Well, I'm not going to say where because I'm not sure if that's public knowledge yet, but somebody has purchased that archive. So it's going to be available. Let's put it that way. I know that. Very exciting that it will be. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this has been great listening to, to you. Thank you. Um, and we have maybe time for one more question from Nicolette, which is, um, where would you say is a good place to start exploring De Prima's writing and life? I think that you both really enjoyed memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed memoirs. And I, I always get confused between memoirs of a beatnik and recollections of my life as a woman um which is maybe a fertile confusion um for anyone looking to explore um and actually i would really recommend spring and autumn annals which um i read is the most recent thing i read and which serves both as partly autobiography and setting the scene of the of the kind of wider context and it's just i think someone has some of her most kind of moving beautiful writing in it outside of revolutionary letters yeah, I, I love recollections of my life as a woman as well. Um, and weirdly, the first thing that popped in my head when I saw this question was just that, you know, there's such a beautiful, um, you know, uh, tradition of, of poets. I mean, C.A. Conrad, clearly, um, and also Wendy Trevino, Dawn Bonney, you know, people people who are, are, are sort of the children spiritually of Diane and in a way like looking at the traces that she leaves. I don't know anyone like her in terms of the the, the potency of influence that she has. You know, everyone I respect the most, it's almost not an exaggeration, you know, everyone I respect the most is is indebted to her, you know, for, for their, their revolutionary spirit and their, you know, commitment to living. It's almost possible, I think, to to say that starting exploring her life could could start with with the kinds of poems that, yeah, I don't know, Wendy Trevino or so on, you know, put out in in clear homage to, to Diane, so that you could get a sense of the the the, the spirit of Diane de Prima in the 21st century via her political children. Thank you, Sophie. 
Thank you, Francesca. Um, maybe that might be a nice place to leave it with her spiritual heirs and political children. Um, so thank you to Helen, to Mira, to CA. Thank you to the LRB shop and thank you to everyone for coming. Um, and yeah, once again, happy, well, not happy birthday, but happy birthday to the book, Revolutionary Letters, because it's the 50th anniversary edition and the LRB has kindly dropped the purchase link into the chat. Um, so yeah, once again, thanks everyone for coming. May it continue to quote Diane. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.